2: And so we come to the end of yet another week on Political Rewind, another consequential week in politics here in Georgia and uh, in the country at large. And we're going to talk about politics in a little while on the show. Uh, The Supreme Court has once again upheld Obamacare despite uh, yet another effort by uh, attorneys general like Chris Carr of Georgia to strike the law down. Um, And we'll talk a bit about the implications of that and whether Obamacare has now become a moot point in the political discourse uh, of of this country. Um, And also, Joe Manchin has uh, come up with a compromise that would establish some uh, means to move forward on a voting rights bill, uh, a national, a federal voting rights bill. Stacey Abrams has now embraced the measure, uh, but is uh, facing a little bit of criticism because many progressives think it doesn't go far enough. Plus, Mitch McConnell has already said uh, that this bill is dead on arrival. So we'll talk about the implications around that as well a little later in the show. But I want to start um, by looking at what has been um, an, an extraordinary meeting in Nashville this past week of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, As many of you know, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the country, and they have been struggling with many of the same cultural and political issues that the country, in a larger way, has been facing, Um, and they bubbled to the surface in many ways this week in Nashville, and so we're going to talk about that as we start the show. So let me introduce the panel. First of all, it's Friday, which means Patricia Murphy, political reporter, and— the author of The Political Insider, her twice-weekly column on politics. You read it on Wednesdays and Sundays in the AJC. Hey, Patricia, um, you got a little preview of what Mm -hmm. we're going to read in your Sunday column?
0: Yes, I am looking at um, the future of a possible Buckhead city, and specifically, what about those Atlanta public schools in the heart of what would be a new Buckhead? Those... Um, those Buckhead students would not be eligible for APS schools, and it and it creates a real um, a real conundrum for people trying to move this forward.
2: Uh, that I'm looking forward to because that's an aspect of the Buck Buckhead Cityhood movement that I don't think a lot of people have have really begun to contemplate. So we'll look forward to reading that, and it'll become part of a conversation on our show, I'm sure. In the weeks ahead, we're also joined by Tia Mitchell, the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tia, you've been busy. Your byline is just all over the AJC this day. A lot going on up there.
1: Yes, it's been a very busy week. It was the House's first week back after a three-week break, and the Senate was here too, and interns, and you know, the Capitol is really starting to look the way it looked pre pandemic, and um, lawmakers are also really um, starting to move on some high profile bills.
2: All right, and we're going to talk about some of that a little later in the show. But joining us, I'm really thrilled uh, to be able to introduce a special guest on today's show uh, Professor Randall Baumer. Professor Baumer is the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth College. Um, professor, it is, I believe, I read, the oldest endowed professorship at Dartmouth, um, and it's it's named after John Phillips, who was at one point an itinerant Bible preacher. Is that is that right, Professor? That's my understanding. Yes, uh, yes,
3: <laughs> and I, I I believe the uh, the endowment was started uh, with a woodlot uh, near Dartmouth College. So uh, apparently, as the Chair, I, I, I have some claim on some woodlot somewhere in uh, oh. northern <laughs> <laughs> New England. <laughs>
2: right. Professor Balmer uh, is also an Episcopal priest. He is the author of a number of books. You've heard me mention him on this show on, on, on several occasions because um, one of his books is a fascinating look at Jimmy Carter's fraught relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention over his lifetime. It's called Redeemer, the Life of Jimmy Carter, and uh, I, I've mentioned on the show before, it is well worth your while. Um, Professor Bomber, we should also uh, point out that you have written extensively about the evangelical movement in this country, um, and so uh, you are well-versed in what's been happening with the Southern Baptist Convention. Is that a fair, a fair way to state it? Yeah, I have to say, I, I don't probably
3: follow the box scores way some— uh, Southern Baptists do, but uh, I, I try to keep tabs on it. Yes.
2: <laughs> okay. Let me start uh, by, and then of course Patricia and Tia will jump into this conversation, but let me start with a quote this past week in Nashville from the outgoing president of SBC, J.D. Greer, who said in a speech, This, are we primarily a cultural and political affinity group, or do we see our primary calling? As being a gospel witness. What's the more important part of our name, Southern or Baptist? In some ways, uh, Professor Balmer, that does seem to encompass a lot of the controversy that's going on, don't you think?
3: It really does, and uh, you would expect a historian like myself to point this out, but uh, let's remember that the whole Baptist tradition in America was begun by Roger Williams back in the 17th century, And he's the person who popularized the image of separating the Garden of the Church from the wilderness of the world. And what most people, by means of a wall of separation, what most people miss in that metaphor is that the colonists of the 17th century were not members of the Sierra Club, by which I mean to say they did not have romanticized understandings of the wilderness so when John, when Roger Williams wanted to separate the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world, his primary concern was that too close an association with the state or with politics would diminish the integrity of the faith. That was his concern, and that I think was uh, is reflected in uh, in Mr. Greer's statement. And I think it's uh, probably a fitting analysis of what's happened uh, with the. Southern Baptist Convention, not only just this year, but ever since 1979 with the conservative takeover, and when Baptists effectively stopped patrolling this line of separation between church and state.
2: Um, Patricia, I think we should point out there's a strong uh, Georgia connection. Obviously, any number of the messengers or delegates to the uh, SBC uh, conference up there in Nashville are from Georgia, but the strongest connection (laughs) is uh, a minister named Mike Stone, who is the pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church way down in Blackshear. He's one of the leaders of the ultra-conservative wing of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is—and he ran for president, um, which was of some concern to many of the more so-called mainstream uh, uh, Southern Baptists who were part of the convention's uh, meeting. Um, He, though, is one of those who says the convention has to reject critical race theory, it has to reject women in the pulpit, or women even preaching about the gospel in the presence of men under any circumstances. This is the strong Trump wing of the party. So uh, that ultra-conservative part of the party is well represented by some in Georgia.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so interesting to see um, the Southern Baptists struggling with I think what a number of um, Religions are struggling with and even with what um, a number of private companies are struggling with What do you do with a new younger more diverse? um, American population that certainly uh, churches are going to be looking to to attract brands are looking to to attract, politicians are looking to to attract, and it's just a group of people who are younger, more diverse, more activist, um, and really looking to infuse their entire lives with politics and how, how does everybody around them feel about these issues of the day. And there's almost a demand from some quarters to remain activist. But especially within the churches, and even with um, with a religion like Catholicism, um, there is a there um, I think is a growing question of at what point are uh, does does politics start and stop, and at what point, um, uh, as the question was, does it really focus We've on? We've uh,
2: about lost our. So interested. There you go. You're back, Tia.
1: Yeah, I. I so interesting to see that the Southern Baptist Convention, even though the culture wars within the denomination have shifted over the years, the Southern Baptist Convention has struggled for decades with culture wars within the denomination. For example, my church in Louisville, Kentucky got in trouble with the convention back in the 90s for letting women in the pulpit. So, you know, Some of these things have been around for years and years, and at the same time, the influence, the membership of the Southern Baptist Convention have dwindled. Um, So I think more and more, yes, it's interesting because, relatively speaking, the denomination is the biggest Protestant denomination in America, but its it's true influence and its true reach, I would argue, is, is just becoming smaller and smaller.
2: So, Professor Balmer, let me tap into your uh, uh, thinking as a historian here. Um, The Southern Baptist Convention really, uh, uh, in in pre-Civil War days, um, was committed to the defense of slavery. I think I'm correct about that. But in many ways, that was one of the pillars of the convention's uh, uh, beliefs in, in, in those days. Yes, sir?
3: Oh, absolutely. I, uh, 1845, that's what uh, prompted the, the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, uh, a, de- a debate over slavery. <laughs> I have to say, I find this whole conversation about critical race theory so, uh, well, if, if it weren't so tragic, it's amusing. Because if I were to teach critical race theory, and I, I, I don't specifically do that, I mean, I, it's. I think any responsible analysis of American history has to understand the systemic racism in American history, which is not to say that all Americans are racist. I'm not suggesting that at all. But if, but if I were to teach specifically create a, a critical race theory, I would probably cite three examples. Uh, the first would be the provision in the Constitution for three-fifths of a person, uh, for a, a black person to, to count in, in the census. Uh, the second probably would be the 20th century practice of redlining, thereby excluding African Americans from being able to, to purchase uh, real estate in, in certain areas, and certain neighborhoods. And the third example would be the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, that's, you talk about critical race theory. I mean, this is one of the prime examples of uh, how the Southern Baptist Convention came into being.
2: So this past week, Professor... Uh, in fact, last Tuesday, the messengers did pass a resolution that uh, reaffirmed something they did in 1995. In 1995, right. they had affirmed their apology. They, they said, we apologize for systemic racism and our role in it. But 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 one of the things that's interesting about that is at the same time they said, yes, we played a role in systemic racism, they rejected the notion— that racial discrimination is rooted in sin what do they mean by that professor
3: uh, I, I i i have no idea <laughs> this, is, this is a tradition that finds sin in all sorts of places and uh why they wouldn't identify that as sinful to me is uh incomprehensible
2: well I, tia and patricia i it, i think when i when i read that that to some extent they're talking about the same kind of now Republican reaction to the 1619 project in the New York Times, which says that America was founded on on a, at the original sin of America, was that slavery has been part of this uh, nation since the first slaves were brought to the shores of then the colonies in 1619,
1: Tia. Yeah, I, I was— Equally confused by that statement because I feel like wouldn't we interpret the the practice of chattel slavery sin, um, you know? So are they saying yes, teach critical race theory because slavery was bad? Um, I that's what I'm hoping they were trying to say, but I wish they would have spoken <laughs> in clear clearer terms because. It's a bunch of gobbledygook, but that's a lot of times what happens when people are trying to use the Bible to push a political agenda. They 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 interpret the Bible. They you know it's easy to make the Bible say what you think you want it to say. And to me, that's what I felt like is this is another you know these are Christian folks uh, trying to put their agenda in biblical terms. Yeah.
2: Patricia?
0: Well, I think it's also um, really pushing up against uh, uh, Southern Baptist, I think, concepts of the origins of their own religion and the origins of the country. And can they go so far as to say, uh, yes, we know that the origins of the country were imperfect, but were the origins also sinful? Um, and were the origins of our religion, sinful and based in sin. And I think that that is the leap that they are, um, really struggling with. And I think that it's, uh, you know, it's a conversation that, um, I think obviously all Americans are struggling with, otherwise we wouldn't be having, um, these conversations right now and they're so fraught with passions. Um, but it really does get back to the question of what is the purpose of religion is it to find, um, and, uh, to find and uh, further divisions? Or is it to find and um, unite divisions? And um, I think that's uh, people's traditional thoughts of religion are that it's to find and um, and uh, unite divisions. Um, but the history shows us that that's not always the case.
1: And I just wanna Patricia just made a very salient point. You know, we talk a lot about identity politics and and it's always it's often been said that, you know, black people and people of color and but religion is identity politics. So you can't and in a lot of times the um conservative Protestants, particularly white conservative congregations make it seem like, well, we're the ones who are above politics. No, no, no. You're using your religion and the things that you guys are doing as a denomination are inherently political. And we're seeing that when the Southern Baptist Convention touches on things like critical race theory.
2: And, Professor, isn't that—to that, that bring this into the realm of, of what this show talks about most of the time, which is specifically politics— uh, the reason I cited their saying that um, uh, they reject the notion of slavery as sin is that it brings him into this question about how far the Southern Baptist Convention is willing to go to support the politics of Donald Trump. And 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 while the convention would you would you would kind of imagine that a majority of the convention messengers may support Donald Trump, but but his. Uh, looming presence over them has led to more divisions within the denomination, hasn't it?
3: Oh, I think it has, and this is a denomination that, again, since 1979 has been um, kind of listing in in that direction. And, you know, I'm I'm not a Baptist, I'm not a Southern Baptist, but I I find that's really sad, it's tragic, because this is a tradition that does have, I think, a lot of integrity, and uh, has spoken in the past in the, with a prophetic voice. And I think it, it underscores to me the, the perils of any religious group or movement trying to hanker after political power or political influence. My sense of American religious history and religion generally, as, as uh, uh, the panelists have, have suggested, is that uh, religion functions best, I think, from the margins of society and not in the councils of power because when you're working from the from the margins of society, you can maintain your prophetic voice. And I think we have a situation now with the Southern Baptist Convention that uh, certainly its prophetic voice was weakened, at least in my judgment, after 1979, and I, it's continued down that same path. Now, that this week did represent uh, at least a minor victory for what some people call Jimmy Carter Baptist, and I think uh, that's, you know, in my judgment, a good thing. But uh, I, I, I fear that the the uh, general prevailing drift is is in a different direction.
2: Yeah, they elected, uh, they did not elect Mike Stone, the ultra-conservative from Blankshire, Georgia. They elected a moderate uh, uh, as president, Ed Litton. Uh, professor, I do want to take a moment to uh, talk about the thesis of your book about Jimmy Carter, because it plays into this conversation. I, I think, if you don't mind me making a very simplistic statement about it, a lot of what you, said, what you basically set out to show in that book is how when Jimmy Carter, as a good Southern Baptist, when he began running for office for president, he was a progressive voice. He was a progressive who was able to engage evangelical Christians in his campaign. They liked what they heard. But during his tenure as president, you track the increasing conservative leaning of the, church, of the Southern Baptist Convention of Evangelical Christianity to the point they couldn't support him in 1980. It, it, is that basically a fair way to say it very quickly? It, it is. And it was very quickly, of course. But yes,
3: uh, the, the uh, conservative takeover of the convention in 1979 was certainly crucial. But let's also remember that uh, despite popular misconceptions about it, Uh, The religious right more generally began not in opposition to abortion, and I've spent a whole more time, more years than I care to count, uh, tracking this down. What was the catalyst for the religious right was the defense of racial segregation in evangelical schools, particularly Bob Jones University, most visibly Bob Jones University, but other segregation academies. And this is what turned them against Jimmy Carter in 1980.
2: Patricia? Uh,
0: Professor Bomber, what in your mind is behind um, this slight shift that we saw this week? Has there been an event or a trend that you think has led the Southern Baptist Convention in this direction?
3: Uh, uh, This direction meaning what? The election Uh, of the president? They elected a moderate. Yes,
2: sir. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, my guess is that it's a matter of numbers. (laughs) Who Who was able to get more voters to the to the convention site, uh, just as how, it, just as the way it worked in the opposite direction back in 1979, uh, that's, that would be my guess. Uh, but these tensions, as, as we've been saying, I think uh, persist within the convention.
2: Another serious issue that the convention uh, has uh, really been uh, torn about is the way in which uh, leaders have dealt with uh, allegations of sexual abuse uh, in congregations. And there was a, a stormy confrontation over that very issue that involved uh, Pastor Mike Stone this past week, according to reporting in uh, the New York Times. On, on Monday of this past week, uh, Pastor Stone confronted a woman named Hannah Kate Williams, who is a victim of sexual abuse. She's advocated reform in the denomination and uh while she was out in a public setting at the uh, convention conference um he confronted her she says that what he said to her was that he she was causing more harm in the southern baptist convention than good that she is not doing right by survivors and that the southern baptist convention is bigger than her individual problems so that's another issue that uh, the moderates did seem to have some sway over this week because they did appoint a new task force to look at allegations of sexual abuse, professor. Yeah, that's right. And you know, let's, uh, let's let's link a couple
3: of issues here. This is a convention that, again, since 1979, has 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 really tried to you know, pump up uh, male uh, superiority <laughs> within its ranks, and. Uh, should we be surprised that one of the consequences of this is uh, abuse of power in 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 a church setting uh, frankly I'm not surprised at all I'm you know not certainly not every pastor is uh, is abusive I'm not suggesting that by any means but uh, I think these these issues are linked uh, if you if you consign women to a secondary role within the Church within the, the the whole Southern Baptist uh, tradition. Uh, w- why should we be surprised if there are abuses that follow?
1: Yeah, and I think we should note there's um, Rehobo's, past, Rehobos Baptist in Tucker is a church that not only began studying sexual abuse within its ranks, but it came out with the report that said the denomination itself wasn't doing a good enough job of making sure that pastors accused of abuse were held accountable and not allowed to just skip from church to church so um i think you know they're kind of on the forefront of this discussion and i do think just religion in general that's not a we all know that's not a southern baptist thing um but in 2021 i think it is surprising for a church denomination who's seen what the catholic church has been through you know to yep. think that they can just sweep it under the rug like that's just not how society is willing to handle allegations of sexual abuse these days so the, the best thing to do, not only—I mean, especially for the survivors, is to be honest about it and to implement true reforms. But it seems, you know, what we keep seeing is, is folks are wanting to protect their own and try to avoid the scrutiny, and that just makes the problem worse.
2: So as we as we uh, kind of come to the end of this portion of our discussion today, Professor Balmer, where do you see— the Southern Baptist Convention heading in a number of areas. I mean, first of all, the conservatives, the ultra conservatives did not win their big fights this week. Yet Donald Trump remains a major looming force over the convention. If he runs for president again in 2024, there's no reason to think evangelical Christians won't be there to support his candidacy. So give us your thoughts about where the convention you believe is headed from a religious point of view or, or a social point of view and a political point of view
3: well I think the the convention needs to take a, a stock of itself and this is going to happen uh, in true, true Baptist fashion at the congregational level I think there are, uh, there's already a movement uh, on both sides for a lot of congregations to cut their ties with the Southern Baptist Convention and and that and that may happen but let me let me come back uh, to the premise of your question, saying that that you know that Donald Trump remains a, such a looming presence over the Southern Baptist Convention. Let's think about that for a moment. This is a convention that purports to be concerned about family values, and yet they support a man who is uh, on his third marriage, uh, former casino operator, uh, self-confessed sexual predator, and yet uh, he somehow can count on the, the support of the majority of Southern Baptists? Something's wrong there. And again, I think uh, the Southern Baptist Convention needs to recover its prophetic voice and its prophetic mission, uh, 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 mission in order to, uh, to save itself. Now, I, I'm not a big believer in institutions. I think institutions are remarkably poor vessels for piety. But if you care about the Southern Baptist Convention, and many people do, obviously, uh, I think you have to, be, uh, to ask these questions and, and to uh, push for answers.
2: Um, you know, Patricia. As we come to it, it, it does strike me that what Professor Baumer just said takes us back to his comments uh, and what he writes about in his book Redeemer, which is the issue of abortion. Uh, the uh, it in that certainly hurt Jimmy Carter's standing with evangelicals during his presidency, and of course now, if the if the Southern Baptist Convention and other evangelicals stick with Donald Trump. A big part of it is his opposition to abortion, as well as his uh, appointing the most conservative justices to the Supreme Court in the service of trying to bring an end to Roe v. Wade. Yes?
0: Uh, yes, that's exactly. That has always been uh, the equation for, uh, for conservative evangelicals to give their support to Donald Trump. They've called him an imperfect vessel, um, but a vessel nonetheless. And uh, they have been wholeheartedly behind him because as a man who um, I think most people understand does not have strong moral convictions, um, he doesn't really care about a lot of those social issues. He'll do what he needs to do. To get the votes and the groups on his side that he needs, and so for the groups who benefit from that, it has been really, um, it's been a really remarkable thing to watch. They've certainly traded, I think, their own, um, their on their own reputation um, to get the things that they wanted into law, um, but I think it's hurt them uh, to some degree in the end
2: all right i 've got to take a break, and as we do uh, uh, Professor Randall Balmer, thank you so much uh for joining us today um I, I will put up a link sure, to, no, uh, you so your, yeah we're going to put up a link to your uh website which will give people an idea if they want to read Redeemer, the Life of Jimmy Carter, how they can do that, or the other books that you 've uh Written, I I said right before we went on the air when you and I first greeted each other, you were one of the first guests that I had on my previous show here at George Public Radio, uh, uh, Two Way Street, when we talked about Redeemer. That was seven years ago, and yet I still think about that conversation and was thrilled when you accepted an invitation to come back. So thank you so very much for being with us today, Professor.
3: Bill, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you.
2: Okay, let's get to a break. I'll be back with Tia Mitchell and Patricia Murphy. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy and Tia Mitchell, uh, both of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Join me for the rest of this conversation or continue with me for the rest of our conversation uh, today. Uh, Patricia, uh, let, me, uh, and, and it, let me start with, um, and well, in fact, Tia, because you've been in Washington covering this, if you don't mind, let me start uh, with you. Um, So Joe Manchin yesterday uh, said that he has come up with, or, or he's been working on, and yesterday it became public, that a compromise that he's been working on for a voting rights bill, a federal voting rights bill, has finally been kind of crafted to the point where it can be introduced in the Senate. Mitch McConnell has already said he has no interest in letting it go through. Uh, but in many ways, Democrats were happy about this because it, it gives them the 50th vote as the majority to at least bring the, to try to bring this uh, to the floor. Have I got that right, Tia?
1: Yes. Um, until recently, Manchin, when asked about before the People Act, said he would vote no. And so what we learned... Um, Wednesday going into Thursday, was that he had produced a framework of a compromise that if new draft language was formed, that included some parts of the For the People Act that he liked, and some new parts that probably were are a little bit more controversial among Democrats and voting rights group. Manchin said, I would get to a yes. And what we saw very quickly, um, particularly from Stacey Abrams, is that she was very quick to say the mansion plan i'm open to it it's a great first step i could absolutely get behind it and so that instantly made like the mansion plan like the pathway forward but what you also saw was that democrats and some voting rights advocates were a little bit disappointed that he was able to so quickly move the discussion in a new direction which, again, includes some things that would pass that they had been actively voting against, for example, voter ID laws. Um, And then you also saw Republicans saying, well, if Stacey Abrams likes it, I hate it. So even though Manchin was trying to, you know, find a compromise, Republicans, even the compromise became something for Republicans to criticize.
2: Um, uh, Patricia, there are basically three planks to the Manchin compromise, one, to make Election Day a federal holiday, two, to uh, mandate a 15-day early voting period across states uh, in the country, and uh, finally to end partisan gerrymandering. By the way, I'd love to see the language on that one because <laughs> I'm not quite sure exactly how you monitor p- partisan or nonpartisan gerrymandering. In any case, Patricia, weigh in.
0: Yes, well, he said that uh, from now on, the maps could be drawn by computers, which of course they are, but they're drawn by computers, but approved yes. by people, and that's the problem. So I think the chances yes. of nonpartisan non-gerrymander districts is uh, very small. Um, however, uh, this um, really does represent um, a compromise uh, on Mansion's part, but it also represents a compromise on Stacey Abrams' part. And I found the entire episode so fascinating because it tells us really two things about Stacey Abrams. Um, one is that her stature has grown so much she is essentially the 101st senator on this issue and when people said who's for it who's against it the first name that was mentioned was not even a senator it was Stacey abrams um what does she think about it okay then we can be for it um the second thing is that it really does speak to what people in georgia have known about Stacey abrams but nationally it may be less well known is that she really is Uh, ready to make a deal in a lot of cases. When she was um, in the state legislature, she did work with Republicans. She did find compromises on issues that were important enough to her that she needed to find what she could get for her side while also giving a little bit on the other side. Um, And when I say she's ready to make a deal, I don't mean she's ready to give away on her principles, but she does have um, a tendency toward compromise That is not well suited for the current U.S. Senate. And so I think that um, uh, it's a good thing she didn't run for Senate. And if she does run for governor, that will be um, that will serve her well if she does end up running for governor.
2: I thought the exact everything you said seemed so right on point. The fact that Abrams became the most important voice in uh, in talking about the Mansion Compromise, uh, was was uh, really fascinating to me. And you, it strikes me, you're also correct that her willingness to be a figure who would look for ways to cooperate, to collaborate with people across the aisle, really doesn't work in the Senate of today, Tia.
1: Right, and and I think you know. Also, we know that. You can't just look at it in a bubble. Republicans are being very strategic with how they try to brand Stacey Abrams, knowing that she's likely to run for governor next year. But we also know on the Democratic side, they don't want to – Stacey Abrams can't be perceived as too willing to move toward the center or toward the Republican position because she's going to need her base should she run for governor. So it's a delicate dance for her right now, because we know that she is passionate about voting laws getting passed at the federal level. We know that this is something she really wants to see done. And again, like Patricia said, she has a pattern of working across the aisle to get things done. So this is really kind of in her wheelhouse. Um, But there's also a political reality that I think is kind of the unspoken elephant in the room. And we saw that a little bit with, you know, we saw Cheryl and Eiffel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund saying, "Um, hey, Stacey, is that (laughs) what you meant or did you kind of mean we want to talk to Manchin and not be so quick? And, you know, we even saw Stacey and said, yeah, you're right. You know, we want to work with him, but there's more to be done. Um, And so, you know. I think this probably is going to be a good exercise for Stacey Abrams, you know, to help her build up her political muscle as we think she's going to continue to seek elected
2: office. Um, Just to uh, give you one quote from what Abrams had to say, she said this, quote, What Senator Manchin is putting forward are some basic building blocks that we need to ensure that democracy is accessible no matter your geography, which is a pretty simple and straightforward uh, comment. On the other hand, <laughs> Senator Lindsey Graham said, quote, the mother of all power grabs, and <sighs> it's going to fail. And here's the one, Patricia, you know, we, we've talked on this show, and of course it's been reported widely uh, by political uh, media, that the, the, the buzzword for Republicans moving forward for 2022 is fear, fear, fear. Uh, here's what John Barrasso of Wyoming said about the compromise. Quote, it is radical. It is extreme. It is dangerous. It is scary. Patricia, it sounds <laughs> like uh, he's gets set for Halloween.
0: <laughs> or it sounds like he found Kelly Lefler's talking points from 2020. I mean, we've heard all about radical, scary. Um, you know, the the, the problem with um, with, I guess, the, the benefit for Republicans with language like that, it works with their base. The problem with language like that is it does not tend to work with independent voters um, and even moderate Republicans who I think really are tired of kind of these buzzwords and name calling and saying, really, is it possible for anyone to do anything productive in Washington right now? I I do think there's just this immense frustration um, with uh, on issues like this and other issues that really are not getting addressed because of the tendency to scramble to corners and start pointing fingers, um, I will say I've heard from a number of uh, Republicans this morning who said, "Well, oh, now the the um, compromise that Mansion has endorsed um, in some ways does not go as far as." Even Georgia's laws that do expand, um, that have uh, early voting longer than would be in that bill, um, has automatic voter registration, which Georgia already has. And so, um, I think Republicans still are still smarting from uh, the it led by Stacey Abrams saying that Georgia's voting laws are Jim Crow 2.0, um, and Republicans are point out on the details. Uh, maybe that's not entirely true right now.
2: Yeah, um, that's, I think, really an important point. Uh, there are certainly aspects of the new voting law which people are are, are are notably and maybe correctly concerned about, but the entire to call the entire thing Jim Crow 2.0 has uh, become kind of a national meme that's certainly a rallying cry for Democrats, but may not be entirely correct in terms of what the law does and doesn't do. Um, Tia, one last thing on this story um, is that in many ways, when uh, Chuck Schumer brings this to the floor next week, it will be a symbolic effort by Democrats to uh, get Republicans to essentially... Uh, block it with a filibuster so they can use that against Republicans. It's one of a number of measures that the Democrats plan to bring up, including pay equity for women and others, that they know they can't win because they don't have the votes needed, the 60 votes needed to break a filibuster, but again, that they're setting up as issues for 2022, right?
1: Yeah, and I do think Republicans need to be careful because, like, Take this Mansion compromise. It's clear that what Mansion has offered gives both sides objectively, gives both sides some of what they want. And again, we know it's a rough framework, but the voter ID stuff is something both sides want. If you listen to Republicans in Georgia, the early voting over 15 days is something they say they want it. Being able to purge voter rolls is something Republicans want. So for Republicans to come out so strong against a framework that is is intended to give them something they want, that could really not go over well with public perception because you're you're saying You didn't want what you considered a Democratic bill that was a gift to everything Democrats want. But now you're saying you also don't want the compromise that was intended to appeal to you.
0: Yeah, I'll also say that I think it's crucial to note that the reason that the For the People Act has gotten the amount of momentum that it has is because Republican state legislators have rushed into this space and have rushed – to pass a number of bills um, that have some extremely restrictive elements to them. Um, Some are less restrictive, some are more restrictive, but the action in this space is overwhelming. um, And it's also overwhelmingly driven by Donald Trump's accusations that the last election was a fraud, which it was not. And so all of that is a part of the same conversation. And I even think Republicans, Um, action in this space and their insistence on being so um, vocally against this bill has a lot to do with um with president trump's ongoing conversations about the election
2: and patricia before we take our final break of the show the other uh, point i think to be made here is that democrats are quietly hoping or perhaps not so quietly that this is one of those moments that gives Joe Manchin second thoughts about whether or not he should continue to say uh, the filibuster must remain in place. Here he's worked hard to try to get this compromise uh, measure uh, before the Senate. Mitch McConnell has already rejected it. Manchin doesn't seem willing to vote to give up the filibuster, but Democrats can't help but wonder, is this the moment? Maybe he'll rethink it, Patricia. <laughs>
0: This is not the moment. It's not the moment. I think, um, (laughs) especially when you're looking at a 50-50 Senate, eliminating the filibuster only helps you when you've got uh, 50 votes. Um, Once you start to peel off one or even two or three Democrats, um, you're still facing even a lack of a majority vote. And Democrats just don't have the firepower right now to push through something like that. Tia? Yeah, I think that... There there I don't think there will be
1: any one bill that says that gives Manchin and or cinema puts them over the line, but I think if there's a pattern that evolves and again that's the risk here that this will be another, you know, example for Democrats to hold up and say, This is why the filibuster needs to be reformed. So Republicans are gonna have to be strategic going into next week because what Manchin has said is that he would be open to amending filibuster rules so that perhaps instead of requiring 60 votes, it only needs 55. And for example, that vote a week or so ago on the January 6th commission, it would have passed in the Senate with 55 votes, I believe. I think they had 55, they just didn't have 60. So, um, you know, that's also a possibility that again, Both Republicans and Democrats need Manchin. And so right now it's looking like Democrats are bringing him into the fold and Republicans are pushing him away.
2: Okay, let's get to our final break of the show. Back with more on Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, Vice President Harris, will be in Atlanta shortly uh, when she lands at, Adla- at Jackson, uh, at Hartsfield Jackson Airport. She'll head over to Ebenezer Baptist Church to talk about people getting vaccinated against COVID-19. And then later, she's going to go to Clark Atlanta University uh, to visit a mobile vaccination site. Georgia still, Patricia, lags far behind many other states in getting people fully vaccinated. And the visits to two... Uh, African American institutions suggest that she's aware that there's still a big pu- needs to be a big push to get uh, Black Georgians inoculated. Yes.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely. This is a part of a multi state tour that she is doing um, to uh, to bring awareness to vaccinations and also to um, really reduce vaccine hesitancy. And we've heard from so many healthcare professionals that the messenger of that. Um, of that call to get vaccinated is so important. And you can't just have, um, uh, for example, Governor Kemp say, it's time to get vaccinated, time to get vaccinated, which he has said many times. Um, In many cases, it's going to need to be a different messenger to bring that call to vaccinations, depending on the community. Um, I do think somebody Probably needs to visit some of the white portions of north, north of Atlanta because I think <laughs> vaccine hesitancy up there is very real as well. So I certainly hope her visit um, just to uh, just to um, an HBCU and to a, a black church is not read as this is the only place we've got this problem. It's a really serious yeah. problem. Go ahead.
2: I'm glad you I'm sorry. I'm glad you pointed that out because, Tia, of course, the other large group of people who were refusing so far to get vaccinated are uh, many conservative Republicans who have bought into this notion that somehow either COVID-19 is a hoax or the vaccine is unsafe.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting. I Marjorie Taylor Greene led a press conference last week um, because she has filed a bill to fire Mm -hmm. Dr. Fauci. And uh, part of the justification she and her co cons- sponsors mentioned was they feel that he has spread misinformation about the coronavirus. But what I found interesting during that press conference is when it came time for Buddy Carter to speak, he kind of went off message a little bit and started talking about the importance of. Ab- Importance of vaccinations, and um, we know that he was part of the Pfizer trial, so he was one of the first Americans vaccinated. And he said, "Hey, look, I got vaccinated. I was in the trial. I'm fine. People need to get vaccinated." And so later in the press conference, I asked Marjorie Taylor Greene and some of the lawmakers who were there at the end, would they also send a message to their, you know, constituents back home that you know. Vaccinations are important. Were they willing to echo what Representative Carter said? And none of the remaining four were. You know, you had um, Representative Massey from Kentucky on his Twitter feed. Even today, he's calling me a nosy reporter. And there's conservative media saying, you know, he he was able to rebut my my invasive question about vaccinations. so you know and they're spreading a lot of misinformation even members of congress about immunity if you were already exposed to the coronavirus that you don't have to get vaccinated and that's not necessarily backed up by science the immunity is considered inconsistent and also not permanent But that that immunity issue is something that's really being used by conservatives to to say, I don't need to be vaccinated because I already had COVID or I didn't get COVID. And that means I'm naturally immune to COVID and therefore don't need to get vaccinated.
2: Okay, Uh, of course, uh, GPB uh, will be staffing the vice president's visit. You'll hear about it later today on uh, All Things Considered. And I know the AJC will be there as well. Uh, We don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but. I do want to turn for a minute, uh, Tia, to the Supreme Court decision on the Affordable Care Act. It's the third major case that the court has rejected, in uh, uh, brought by Republican attorneys general, including George's Chris Carr, uh, saying that it should be outlawed in its entirety. We don't have time to go into the details of their lawsuit. Except what's interesting about it, I think, is that they didn't really deal with the substance of the case they said that the attorneys general didn't have standing and uh justice alito was really issued a stern rebuke saying why don't we take this on for the the real substance of this but but um tia the court doesn't seem to have any interest in doing anything to outlaw obamacare and the reason i think it's particularly interesting right now is it's really lost its value as a wedge issue for republicans hasn't it
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think the fact that the Supreme Court was willing to just say, we're not going to touch it. And Republicans, if you saw yesterday, they weren't saying we're going to refile. We're going to, you know, find a way to push this forward. Republicans are basically saying, you know what, we're going to leave the Supreme Court alone and we're going to pivot when it comes to health care. You know, they might tweak Obamacare at the margins, but just like Medicare and Medicaid, these health care safety nets are not going away.
0: Yes, and I think that after now eight years of Republicans promising to repeal and replace Obamacare, um, the replace piece never fell into place for Republicans. They never could figure out what they would replace it with. And after... I think eight years of that, they've seen that is really not a road that they want to continue to go down. So in a very strange way, the Supreme Court decision almost lets them off the hook. They can say, oh, well, the Supreme Court has now stood up for this. Um, We will continue to hear about healthcare. We know we're going to continue to hear about Medicaid expansion, um, perhaps an idea of Medicare for all from, um, from some Democrats. But in states like Georgia, that still does not have a Medicaid expansion under Obamacare, that's going to continue to be an issue, um, regardless of what the Supreme Court has said today.
2: I, I, that strikes me as being the important point here, that uh, the, the battle is going to turn to the states. It will no longer be in the hands of Congress or the courts, the federal courts. It's the states, Patricia, who will now have to figure out what to do to make sure their uh, their, their residents are insured, right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. That will certainly be an issue um, that we'll hear about in the governor's race coming up. We already hear um, even Senator Warnock talking about it. It's not a federal issue at this point, but even he is saying we need to expand Medicare um, in Georgia. So that's a, uh, a democratic message we'll continue to hear.
2: Um, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, thank you for such an interesting conversation. Another show in which I'm learning something listening to you two. And I also loved having Professor Randall Balmer on earlier talking about the Southern Baptist Convention. So uh, I appreciate your presence on the show today. Uh, Both of you were out of time for not only today's Political Rewind, this week's Political Rewind. We're back again with a brand new show on Monday. I hope you all have a good weekend. Take care. Stay healthy. Stay healthy. Uh, If you haven't gotten your shot, go out and get it because you won't have to wear a mask everywhere you go if you liberate yourselves. See you all next week. Bye bye.